For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup sea foam can help your engine run better and last longer simply pour a can in your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on sea foam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to SteelDealers.com. Now... Here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. A New York man was caught red-handed last month by environmental conservation officers after neighbors reported seeing red squirrels at the neighborhood park. And when I say red, I don't mean the species that uh, is named a red squirrel or, you know, like a communist squirrel. We've been trying to kill moose and squirrel for 35 years. Never even come close. Exactly. I mean, gray squirrels spray-painted bright red. That's what I mean when I say red squirrels. Anyway, according to the New York Department of Environmental Conservation, officers conducted surveillance in the town of Patterson and observed a bright red squirrel crossing the street less than a block away from the suspect's residence. They interviewed the suspect, who has not been named, and he admitted to live trapping the squirrels, painting them red inside the traps, and releasing them back into the neighborhood. He said he was doing it to keep track of which squirrels were returning to his yard and causing his dogs to bark. As frustrating as barking dogs can be, his actions were still illegal. Understandable, though, from a biological perspective. It's like a a mark and recapture study he was running. But he was cited for violations related to the trapping, transporting, and liberating of wildlife, as well as for the mistreatment of animals. It's also unclear how knowing which squirrels were coming into his yard could have helped his situation uh, without the intent to maybe transplant them or dispatch them. I understand trapping nuisance squirrels, but uh, why red paint? Is his backyard super large? Couldn't he have done something a little more subtle? If uh, anyone has any insight into this, uh, you know where to find me. ASKCAL at TheMeatEater.com Okay, this week we've got legislation and lots of it. It's that time of year, so buckle up. Hunter safety and a crappie record deal. But first I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was pretty darn interesting, as always. 
Flew into Kansas City, Missouri with some friends. First stop was to Joe's Convenience Store for a brisket sandwich and some dirty rice. Then on to Roger's Sporting Goods. I uh, only mentioned this store because it was refreshing and awesome to see a place with such an incredible selection of waterfowl. We just don't get that in Montana. Then drove out to a spot I never thought I would go. And this is where things get spoiled. Ended up at the world famous Habitat Flats. It's a large, very well-known, I would say world famous, like I just did, waterfowl hunting operation. I think they can hunt like 60 hunters a week out of each lodge, uh, which is a lot of guns, guys, and ammo. This week, fortunately for me, the operation was not going full tilt as they were in between duck season, which had just ended, and the conservation season, which is, you know, the crazy stuff that you see on the YouTube and the TV about emptying uh, 15 round extended mags at tens of thousands of snow geese. And, uh, you know, it looks super fun. Anyway, we did not beat up the geese very hard during our three days of hunting, but it was still super fun. And because we were primarily decoying Canada geese, and I had happened to have had a few really good days shooting geese back home, I sat back and watched as everyone else did most of the shooting which was very entertaining and very relaxing. Oddly enough, as it happened on my very first day, the last group of geese that came into the spread, one bird peeled cleanly off to my side after all the guns had gone off, so I decided to shoot, and that bird happened to be banded, which is my first ever goose band and my only shot of the day, which is pretty funny how that works out. Bird banding has been around for roughly a couple of centuries at this point, but as we know it, the banding of migratory birds started in the early 1900s, and for those who are listening and are totally unawares, uh, aluminum bands are placed around the legs of birds that are typically captured during the molting process when they cannot fly. Each band has a series of numbers stamped into it. Those numbers correspond with where and when the banding took place. Now, these bands are like mass-produced, and they're not produced like specifically for one spot. So you can have very similar band numbers from birds that were banded in very different parts of the country. So a bird banding operation, they get a bunch of bands in, and then they record those bands, the series of bands that they have, and then they go out and band birds. Got it? Cool. The bird that I shot was killed in Tama County, Iowa, near Desart, which is spelled D-Y-S-A-R-T. So uh, it seems straightforward, but I'm sure I'm screwing it up. You know where to find me. Anyway, Desart, Iowa is about, I don't know, let's call it 200 miles as the goose flies from where I was at Habitat Flats. Canada geese can fly about 30 miles an hour, a little bit faster with the tailwind, a little bit slower with the headwind, and they will jump when they're migrating about 1,500 miles in a day. So if you factor that all in, there should be a really tender goose, right? We weren't dealing with a real overachiever. Talk to me, Goose. And it was. The thighs were turned into ragu, uh, which were delicious. Goose thighs are fantastic, by the way. And uh, we grilled and sliced the breasts thin on top of uh, morel mushroom risotto. Better than anything I've had in a restaurant in a long time, tell you that much. All right, like I said earlier, buckle up. It's time for the legislation desk. I know I got a bad legislation. All right. We rely on you folks to stay on top of all the outdoor-related bills and proposals being considered in states around the country. For this week's Legislation Desk, you sent us so much good stuff that we're only covering stories submitted by listeners. 
I'd already heard about a few of these, but most of them were totally new, which is why we got to keep talking. We're a kick-ass community when we connect, so let's keep it up. Several of you sent me a bill in Nebraska that takes money from the state's various wildlife and habitat funds and diverts it to the state's general fund. LB1413 steals $7 million from the state game fund, $2.5 million from the Nebraska Habitat Fund, another $2.5 million from the state park cash revolving fund, and $6.5 million from the Water Recreation Enhancement Fund. These funds are used to purchase and maintain habitat and hunting ground, manage wildlife species, promote outdoor recreation, and many other things the outdoorsy folks in Nebraska support. What's more, diverting the funds in this way jeopardizes the $20 million the state receives from the federal government through the Pittman-Robertson allocation. It's just not a good idea, gang. Like, once you lose this stuff, it's gone. Every hunter and angler in Nebraska should contact their state senator and voice their disapproval. Listener Jim Lane sent me a bill being considered by the South Dakota legislature that would allow residents to abandon cats if they've been spayed or neutered. That's the cats, not the residents. Theon's favorite toy. He cried when I took it away from him. Current South Dakota law prohibits anyone who is responsible for the care of an animal from neglecting, abandoning, or mistreating that animal. That makes it illegal for people to implement trap, neuter, release programs designed to control populations of feral cats from procreating. Anyone can capture a feral cat, but they are not allowed to return that animal back to the street. If this bill passes, that would change. Individuals and nonprofit groups would be allowed to round up feral cats, spay or neuter them, and send them on their merry way, where they would be allowed to kill native birds, mammals, reptiles, spread disease, and just basically be nasty. The bill number is SB172. It is far from perfect. Huh? You see what I did there? It passed unanimously in the Senate Local Government Committee, which is just crazy for a state that is like the sportsman's paradise, not Louisiana, but South Dakota's amazing. This bill like directly threatens pheasant populations, grouse populations, and that's what uh, the economy of South Dakota seems to be built on. You can watch my Pheasantomics episode on the Meat Eater YouTube channel if you don't believe me. SB 172 is awaiting a vote in the full Senate. Get on the horn and talk to your representatives in the state legislature. My goodness. The Utah Wildlife Board is considering a proposal that would require a special permit for harvesting shed antlers. At their January meeting, the board heard a presentation from the Shed Antler Gathering Committee, which had been tasked with updating the state's rules about shed hunting. The committee is recommending several significant changes. First, while Utah residents would be allowed to look for antlers year-round, non-residents would only be allowed to shed hunt from May 31st to December 31st. Resident and non-resident hunters would be required to obtain a permit based on their age. Kids 11 and under would not be required to get a permit, while kids aged 12 to 17 could shed hunt on just a regular hunting license. But anyone 18 years of age or older would have to obtain a shed antler gathering permit. There's no word yet on how much this permit would cost, and some of those decisions will have to be made by the state legislature. The board didn't vote to change anything at this meeting, but they seem open to some kind of adjustment to the status quo. As shed hunting becomes more popular, many western states are considering or have already passed proposals that would restrict when and where people are allowed to look for antlers. The good news for Utah residents is that you have plenty of time to weigh in. The Wildlife Board plans to vote on changes this summer, which means now is the time to let them know what you think. 
The state legislature will also have to pass legislation to work out some of these details, so you'll have a chance to weigh in at that time as well. Listener Dawson Hurst sent us that story, and he asked that I share my thoughts on the issue. Oh, boy. I used to do a ton of shed antler hunting. Really, really enjoyed it. Great way to stay in shape, and honestly, it's a great way to know the patterns of the animals that we hunt. So I would hate to see it go away. But the pragmatic part of my brain says that uh, the good Lord, Mother Nature, whatever pagan spirit you believe in, science did not design these animals. Evolution did not design these animals. To drop that uh, mineral, nutrient, calcium-rich thing on the ground, to have it be turned into, uh, you know, some dude's libido medicine or... um, you know, an antler chandelier or something like that. God knows we don't need another cribbage board out there. The other part is, uh, as we've seen through decades of human beings operating on the free market with wildlife, being able to pick this stuff up and sell it turns uh, some people into monsters. They break laws, they push sensitive wildlife, even on harsh winters, into areas where there is no feed, or it just happens to be that last burst of energy before they tip over dead. It can be very destructive on our wildlife herds. So like most laws, and you know, maybe you're calling me chicken shit for saying this, they probably don't need to exist if it weren't for the bad actors. If the state intends to use these funds generated by this shed gathering license to put more enforcement out there and regulate the behavior of just these couple of bad actors, Yeah, you know, I can kind of see it. I can kind of see it. Yeah, right in. Let me know what you think. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, 
Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it, you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. In Pennsylvania, the legislature will once again have a chance to remove all prohibitions on Sunday hunting. Under current law, Pennsylvania hunters can only go out on three Sundays every year. Senate Bill 67 would replace that statute with language that permits hunting on all Sundays and vests rulemaking authority with the Pennsylvania Game Commission. The sponsor of the bill points out that limited Sunday hunting has been extremely successful and exceptionally safe. The bill has been introduced the past two years without success, but if enough Pennsylvania hunters make their voices heard, I think this could be the year. Thanks to listener Todd Webster for sending that one in. In Illinois, House Bill 4708 would expand water access rights across the state. Current Illinois law allows access to only about 1,000 of the state's 87,000 miles of rivers and streams. HB 4708 would change that paradigm by allowing public access to a lake, river, or stream that is capable of supporting use by commercial or recreational watercraft for a substantial part of the year. This wouldn't give anglers the right to trespass on private land, but it would align Illinois with many other states in prohibiting landowners from restricting access to public waterways. Man, hats off to you if you can get that passed. I think it would be, uh, you know, the way it should be. Nobody asked for my opinion on that one, but uh, public access to water seems like a no-brainer to me. Big thanks to Drew Kazinski for sending us that bill and for his work on this issue for the Illinois chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Every Illinois angler should be weighing in on this one, so hop on the phone with your state reps. At least two states are considering legislation that would remove protections for hundreds of thousands of acres of waterways. In Tennessee, listener Chris Berg told me about HB 1054. This bill would prohibit the state from classifying an area as a wetland if that property is not classified as a wetland under federal law. Considering the recent Supreme Court decision that narrowed the definition of wetland at the federal level, this bill would eliminate protections for 400,000 acres. Developers and landowners would no longer have to get state approval and pay mitigation fees before filling in, dredging, or otherwise disturbing wetlands. These permits are important because they prevent developers from harming wetlands that provide habitat for wildlife, a buffer against drought and flood mitigation. The bill is being opposed by the Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation, along with several other environmental and conservation groups. The Indiana legislature is considering a similar bill. Lucas Fricke and Amanda Atkinson both sent me information about HB 1383, which just passed the state house. The details get a bit complicated. Here's what you need to know. HB 1383, 1383 would be another way to say it, would redefine how wetlands are classified in the state to reduce the number of highly protected areas. The legislature passed a bill in 2021 that rolled back protections for over half of the wetlands in Indiana. Now it looks like they're trying to reduce the protections even more for these vital ecosystems. The Indiana chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers points out that the state has lost 85% of its wetlands in the last century. 
That's 85% fewer acres that support waterfowl, filter drinking water, and soak up rains that cause floods. If this bill passes the state Senate, it will be easier for developers to come in and drain these areas. One Senate committee has already passed this bill, and it's possible that it will have passed the full legislature by the time you hear this. If that's the case, it's time to contact Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb and ask for a veto. A right-to-hunt-and-fish resolution is working its way through the Iowa legislature. While it failed to gain enough steam to pass last year, sponsors are hopeful that they'll see more success this time around. The resolution amends the Iowa State Constitution to give Iowa residents the right to hunt, fish, trap, and harvest wildlife using traditional methods. These methods can be subject to laws and rules by the state legislature and the Natural Resource Commission. But those rules must maintain the resources for public use and preserve the future of hunting, fishing, and trapping. In order for the Constitution to be amended, a resolution must pass the legislature two years in a row and then be approved by a majority of Iowa voters. Big thanks to listener Nick Sorensen for sending that one in. Moving north of the border, listener Steve Robinson told me about a proposed spring bear hunt in Nova Scotia. The provincial government is proposing the hunt as a pilot project and is asking residents to weigh in. Nova Scotia is currently the only province with a black bear population that does not have a spring hunt. The Natural Resources Department is proposing a hunt that will last five weeks from May to June of this year. Hunting will not be allowed on Sundays, killing females with cubs will be prohibited, and the yearly bag limit will remain at one bear. The hunt will be open exclusively to Nova Scotia residents who must obtain a bear hunting license to participate. The province is asking for feedback via an online survey. Veterans of the Spring Bear Wars in Washington State can tell you that anti-hunting groups will be all over this. So it's crucial that Nova Scotia hunters make their voices heard. In fact, listener Steve Robinson sent me this story after he said it being shared by anti-hunting groups on social media. So head on over to TheMeatEater.com forward slash Cal, where you'll find a link to the survey under this week's episode. You can also find it by googling Nova Scotia Spring Bear Hunt Survey. The last day to submit a response will be February 24th. Last one for you. Steve Windham, who you may remember as our guest in episode 238, sent me some info on a proposal in Michigan that would end year-round coyote hunting. The state went to a year-round coyote season in 2016, but this proposal would shorten the season to nine months from July 15th to April 15th. The move is being opposed by the Michigan United Conservation Clubs because they say it's bending to social pressures rather than crafting wildlife policy based on sound science. The State Department of Natural Resources is remaining neutral on this issue, but they did admit that going to a year-round season had no impact on the number of coyotes harvested. In other words, there's no biological reason to shorten the coyote season. If the same number of coyotes are harvested either way, why should we limit the time of year hunters can get out in the field? The department's fur taker user group wants to consider this change due to concern about, quote, social perception and future loss of management tools if the open season continues to allow coyotes to be taken when there are dependent young present. If too many people in the general public hear about coyotes being killed while pups are being left on their own, it might trigger a larger backlash against coyote hunting more generally. That's the argument. For their part, the Michigan United Conservation Clubs worries that the commission is headed down a slippery slope. The MUCC's policy and government affairs manager, Justin Tomai, said, quote, Acquiescing to social pressures will start a long downward spiral when we can't afford to go down as hunters. The proposal was considered last week at a meeting of the Natural Resources Commission, and it could get a vote as early as next month. 
get in touch with the members of the commission and let them know how you feel. Okay, there's lots more out there. There's definitely stuff that we missed, but that concludes the giant legislation desk, courtesy of Cal's Week in Review listeners. Get in touch with us if we missed anything. Most importantly, your takeaway here needs to be that if something's happening in a state near you, there's probably something happening in your state. You got to be vigilant. You got to pay attention and you got to weigh in. Write letters, make phone calls, get involved. If you want to come to us for your information, instead of typing in a search in the Google machine, go to themeateater.com forward slash Cal, and we'll have links to where you can, uh, you know, contact your uh, representatives. All right, moving on to the survey desk. A new survey has found that 86% of firearm owners and sport shooters who do not hunt support using gun taxes for conservation. This might not sound surprising, but it's actually very important. When the Pittman-Robertson Act was passed in 1937, the Venn diagram of people who own firearms and people who hunt was basically just two overlapping circles. In other words, if you owned a firearm in 37, you almost certainly like to hunt. That's why the user pays, user benefits model made so much sense. If hunters were the main group of people harvesting animals, they should fund the conservation of those animals using tax dollars collected from guns and ammo. But those two groups have shifted a bit in recent decades. These days, it isn't uncommon to talk with someone who owns firearms and enjoys shooting them, but doesn't hunt. Because of this split, there's been talk of doing away with Pittman-Robertson. We covered a bill last year, authored by Congressman Andrew Clyde, that would do exactly that. He argued that many gun owners no longer hunt, and it violates their Second Amendment rights to impose a tax on guns and ammo. There wasn't much support for Representative Clyde's bill, and this survey should take the last breath of wind out of those sails, I would think, but I have it on, you know, good authority that Representative Clyde was walking around SHOT Show talking about his uh, now infamous idea. The survey, conducted by the firm Responsive Management in partnership with the Southeastern Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, interviewed 2,919 adult firearm owners and sport shooters who had not hunted in the previous five years. Their responses indicated broad support for gun taxes among the people who Representative Clyde says are having their rights violated. Nearly half of the respondents didn't know about Pittman-Robertson before taking the survey, but 52% said they strongly support the program after learning more about it. Another 34% said they moderately support it, while 12% remained neutral. On the other hand, only 3% of respondents said they either strongly or moderately oppose Pittman-Robertson. That's good news for conservation funding. I think it's true that gun owners today would not support new taxes on firearms, even if the funds were going to wildlife conservation. But even non-hunting gun owners are happy to learn that they're a big reason why we have healthy habitats and abundant wildlife. It's not a perfect system, and I think there's room to expand revenue sources for fish and game agencies, but our model has worked pretty well so far, and gun owners agree that there's no reason to change it. Moving on to the Hunter Safety Desk. An Iowa hunter is facing a misdemeanor charge after allegedly shooting his hunting partner in southeast Colorado. Game wardens say the incident happened on a coyote hunt. The suspect was with two other hunters when he saw a coyote about 50 feet away and fired his shotgun, but he missed the animal. So he swung around and fired again. But instead of hitting his target, he hit his hunting partner. The partner, a 70-year-old man also from Iowa, was flown to a Colorado Springs hospital for treatment, but fortunately only sustained minor injuries. The suspect faces a penalty between $100 and $1,000 and an assessment of 20 hunting license suspension points. 
Another hunter is being charged with negligent homicide after he says he mistook a person for a deer. Police in Baton Rouge, Louisiana say 54-year-old Thomas Franklin was deer hunting in a wooded area when he fired his rifle and hit 34-year-old Jacob Altazan. Franklin told police that no one was wearing hunter's orange when it happened and that he thought he was shooting at a deer. But local media also reports that a third hunter who has not been named quoted Franklin as saying the gun went off accidentally. And that's not the only strange thing about this story. One of Altazan's friends told local media that he was very conscientious about hunter safety and would never have taken his, off his vest in the woods. He claims Altazan was wearing his vest when he went hunting that morning and he cast doubt on Franklin's version of events. This investigation is obviously ongoing. We'll keep you posted when we hear more. Moving on to the fishing desk. And get ready, because it smells crappie. A Kansas man is crying foul after state officials confirmed and then rescinded a state record for a white crappie he caught last April. Several of you sent me this story and asked me to weigh in. At this point, I don't think we have enough to go on, but here's what we know so far. Bobby Parkhurst caught a big old crappie at Pottawatomie State Fishing Lake No. 2 on March 5, 2023. The fish was inspected and measured by the Assistant Director of Fisheries for the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks. After the required 30-day waiting period, the fish was weighed on a certified scale and clocked in at 4.07 pounds, five hundredths of a pound heavier than the previous state record, which was caught in 1964. Normally, that would be the end of the story, but game wardens allegedly received a tip that there was something fishy about this crappie. So in late April of 2023, they went to Parkhurst home, seized the fish. Months later, in November of last year, they updated their press release and the state records, removing Parkhurst's catch from the books. All they say in the press release is that the fish, quote, could not be confirmed. A spokesperson for the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks said, I thought that was a Catholic thing. Huh? Huh? Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. That's putting it mildly. Never mind, he didn't say that. I said upon re-examination, the original weight of the fish could not be replicated or verified. Did Parkhurst somehow bamboozle a fisheries biologist? Not according to him. He posted on Facebook that he caught the fish legally and honestly and jumped through all the hoops he was supposed to. He calls the game wardens bullies, says they're dishonest, and that they're slandering him. Kansas Parks and Wildlife hasn't offered an explanation, and they say the investigation is ongoing. We don't know what the truth is here. The stories can change quickly with just a few additional details, but I can tell you this, this is the most the nation's cared about white crappie in a long time. So uh, let's get to the bottom of this one. That's all I got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, remember to write in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's askcal at meateater.com and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. We really do appreciate it. Let's keep these bad bills just as bills and not from getting passed as laws or regulations. It's up to us. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more.
Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.